Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Maybe we don't do well in having conversations with people because we feel the responsibility to bring about their conversion rather than trusting the work of the Spirit. And so I think this is a, a, something that we all need to be mindful of. We don't take Jesus anywhere. He's already there. We don't convert the human heart. That's the work of the Spirit. So when you uh, uh, embrace those two ideas as reference points in your life, then I can walk through my community, ride my elevator up and down, enter coffee shops, co- have conversations with my neighbors, and what I'm looking for is, where are the evidences of grace? Where is God working in their life and in their story? Because I know he's there. I am not going to live under the pressure of having to take him there, because that would be prideful of me and presumptuous of me. God is working on the hearts of people all over the world. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. We long to see the body of Christ look like Jesus. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes come out each week. And go leave a rating and review. It's easy, it only takes a second, and it helps us find new listeners to the show. Just go to the show page on the app that you're using right now and hit five stars. It really is that easy. Thank you so much. And find us on social media, Instagram, X or Twitter, Threads, uh, Facebook, YouTube, at Shifting Culture Podcast. I'd love to interact with you there. I post a lot of video clips and quotes. So come join us on social media. Previous guests on the show have included Jamie Winship, Todd Hunter, and Karen Wright Marsh. You can go back, listen to those amazing episodes and more. But today's guest is Terry Christ. Terry is the co-lead pastor of City of Grace in Phoenix alongside his wife, Judith. He has a business certificate in nonprofit management from Harvard Business School. And Terry is also passionate about community transformation and promotes adoption and foster care through his work in state government. An avid outdoorsman and gifted communicator, he has adventured and preached the gospel in 65 nations. Terry and Judith have three married sons and three grandchildren. They live in Phoenix, Arizona. Terry and I have a great conversation and tell a lot of stories of engaging others in a way that brings dignity, relationship, curiosity, and hope. How can we love our enemies? How could we follow the better way of Jesus that brings hope? How could we, in our fractured world, have conversations of truth full of grace, seasoned with compassion? How do we pursue the way of peacemaking? How do we build bridges and not barriers? How do we have curious conversations with people? 
Well, we learn that our gospel is embodied and proclaimed. We learn that listening is an act of love. So join us as we discover how to listen well, how to engage others who are more alike us than we realize, and point us all to the way of Jesus that brings hope, reconciliation, and peace. Here's my conversation with Terry Christ. Well, Terry, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Joshua. It's great to be with you. I started digging into your book, Loving Samaritans. There's a few things that that really resonated with me, and one is really just to show love and grace to to all people that we're all the children of God, that we could see people for who they truly are. And your journey from going to the suburbs of Phoenix and Scottsdale and into uh, this high-rise apartment and being in the midst of the city and the midst of people really resonated with what it looks like to be what Jesus did, right? He came and he incarnated with us. And he, as Eugene Peterson said, moved into the neighborhood. What was it like for you then to move into the neighborhood, to move from one space to another? Josh, uh, is it Josh or Joshua? Joshua, but I resonate with Josh as well. So either one is good. (laughs) I have a Joshua. My middle son is Joshua and we go back and forth. Joshua, for me, the movement has not just been this most recent one that I describe in the book, but it has been a consistent journey of continually moving out beyond the natural settling points in my life. And I think we all had them. I think that we all just settle into places. We come from a long list of settlers, people who pioneered and then settled. And for me, this latest journey has been a continuation of a lifetime of commitment to not settling, to loving people, placing myself in vulnerable positions, uncomfortable situations for the sake of connecting with people, for the sake of the gospel. And so this latest chapter, the story that you're referencing there in the book is one that was our continuation of those very things. My wife and I moved from the comfort of suburban Phoenix on the edge of Scottsdale right down into the center of Midtown. And in doing so, we placed ourselves in a community that is as broad and diverse as you might imagine. And our lives are enriched by the relationships that we're forming with people, hopefully as their lives are being enriched by our faith and our love for them. So one of the things that stood out is you said, we felt sometimes that we were just outsourcing our compassion to our congregants, our leadership team, or our other people, and that you wanted to to really, you know, put your money where your mouth is and walk into it yourself. And I know you travel all over the world, you're able to to sit with people and share the love of Christ, but what is it to do it on a, a day in and day out? basis with the people that that are around you? I think it's easy for all of us to outsource our compassion, and I think we do it in a thousand different ways. Some of them may be conscious when we find ourselves in a situation that we don't know how to handle, and so we just look around for someone else to intervene. And others may be subconscious when we, at this time of the year, other times of the year, give contributions or at Christmas time as we walk by the little red pot and drop some money in and don't really think about 
who is on the other side of that contribution? Who's doing the work? Who's in the trenches? And for me as a leader, uh, a leader of a large and flourishing church that we're privileged to serve, it's easier than in many, many other aspects of life to just outsource, to have a staff member uh, make the call, to have someone else reach out to those who are in need. And I think there's something really important about us as followers of Jesus, settling back into the original framework that he had for our lives, the framework of community engagement, the framework of good neighboring, the framework of being present to other people. All of these things are fundamental and essential to our faith, and they're personal. We have an embodied faith, a faith that is highly personal, and we have to be those people that engage with individuals at a uniquely individual level. We all get caught up in a way of outsourcing our compassion, but I think it's it's really easy for Christian leaders to be able to do that. Leaders of church or you know lead a missions organization. There's all sorts of, of Christian leaders that are are being protected and in a, in a bubble. And I think sometimes there's bad things that that come because of it. How can we actually get out of that bubble and start to see people and be with people and not just be protected on the inside where some some bad habits can start to come out? I think for leaders, uh, it begins with us coming to the idea that we will never be as effective in ministering to the many if we're not present to ministering to the one. And I know for me personally, that was an issue. So when I was being spiritually formed, when I was growing up in a church in a pastor's home, I had the idea that effective pastors, pastors that were really reaching people and leveraging their influence and making a difference in the world, that they had to forfeit personal relationships with individuals for the sake of reaching many and ministering to many. And that was sort of based on the idea. I grew up in a very, very small church, so I think it was a misperception, but it was based on the idea that we can't do it all. And so if you can't do it all, then why not attempt to do, you know, what you can to reach the more? And for me, I had to come back to the point where I realized one day that we're not really reaching the many and ministering to the masses if we're not effectively connecting with people individually and uniquely, because it's there in those personal connections that our hearts are broken and sensitized to the heart of Jesus. It's there in those personal connections that we understand the questions that people are wrestling with in life and the real struggles, the coffee shop conversations that leaders can easily uh, lose sight of. So I'm a big advocate for, again, reaching as many people as you can. I love the humanitarian efforts that can mobilize significant assets on the ground. I love the mission sending agencies that, you know, deploy people all over the world. Nothing wrong with that, but that all has to be anchored fundamentally in a life connected in community, in being in the neighborhood. And that's really what Eugene Peterson is saying there in his uh, rendition, John 1.14. It's about a way of being, uh, not just proximity, but connection to people. Yeah, you referenced uh, at the very beginning of your book, you referenced Alan Hirsch, and I've, I've worked with Alan Hirsch a lot. He talks about the 
missional incarnational impulse, right? So to to go out on mission, but then incarnationally, we want to go deep in the neighborhood. And I knew, you know, for me, when I started working with Syrian refugees, I had an option. I could have stayed in the big city in Amman, Jordan, and been kind of comfortable. Or I could have moved to the small town on the edge of the desert, the border of Syria, to work with Syrian refugees and actually move into the neighborhood. And I'm so glad that I was pushed into moving into the neighborhood because I can't actually be effective, as you said, in ministry unless we are with people uh, day in and day out and we see them for who they they truly are. And we're not just helicoptering in uh, to do ministry and then coming back out, but we're going deep into being incarnationally with people. And that's and that's the key word. If I if I could just jump in, I love I love what you've said there. I love the idea of being with people, uh, and that's really fundamentally what this whole premise is about. That's what loving Samaritans is about. Sometimes our witness is ineffective because we failed in the witness, in the presence, in part, in actually being with people. And of course, as you would know, this this requires a vulnerability on our part. Sometimes we don't do this because it feels really, really risky. Living on mission thrusts us into the uh, sometimes brutal and raw and painful realities of the human existence. And sometimes these stories don't end up with storybook endings. We're not able to just share our faith in simple ways that lead to beautiful conclusions. But you know, sometimes it takes years before you can get to the conversation about what we believe. And sometimes it doesn't result in what we hope for in terms of conversion, people coming to faith in Jesus. But we have to keep doing this. We have to be engaged with people consistently, regardless of the pain of that and the risk inherent within that. And that's what missional engagement is really all about. When Jesus sent his disciples into the world, he sent them like lambs amid wolves symbolizing vulnerability and yet strength, symbolizing this sense of being present and yet trusting God in the midst of it all. So living on mission for me is a very simple thing. It's going through my life with my eyes wide open and my heart wide open, walking through my days, having conversations with people, making connections, listening as best I can. And I'm not a great listener. My wife says I'm better than I think I am. I'm certainly not a soundbite guy, as you've quickly discovered here. But uh, all of this is sort of the messiness of life and, and living on mission. And we have to embrace the mess with them. We do have to embrace the mess. And I think Jesus was really good at embracing the mess and that he could engage uh, with people that were on the outside and were messy on the outside of the the Israeli community, the Jewish community that he was a part of there that people didn't say they want to engage with or touch or be a part of. But Jesus said, no, we have to go and be with these people. And so, of course, this book, Loving Samaritans, based off of the the Samaritan woman at the well. So what does it look like for Jesus then to to contrast the the Pharisees being with only themselves and and arguing about theology and and other types of things and saying what is right living 
and Jesus then going to a place where he go, oh, that's that's wrong. The Pharisees would say that's wrong, that's dirty, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. But he would see a woman who you know had had five husbands. The man he she was living with wasn't even her husband, and he could see her for who she was in such a way that she said, this is incredible. And she went to town and said, everybody, you need to meet this Jesus because of, of what he has done for me in this brief conversation. Yes. I think the way that these two encounters uh, are positioned in the gospel of John, the, the way they're situated is so important. Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, a prominent Pharisee. And then within a short matter of time, the movement shifts, and he is on his way to Samaria uh, to meet with the Samaritan woman there at the well. I think what we can deduce in reading this is that the Pharisees and the Samaritans weren't nearly as far apart as the Pharisees would have liked to have believed. I mean, there was a lot of commonality. And I think this matters because so many times in our echo chambers, so many times in our tribes, so many times in these insulated lives that we live, we tend to think that we're a lot more unlike people around us than what we actually are. And what I believe is that we have a lot more in common with people, people of faith, people of without faith, uh, Jewish people, Muslim people. We're human beings, and we have this fundamental lived reality that is common to all of us. So if you strip away labels and you strip away religious descriptors and you get back to, you know, fundamental identities and the longings of the human heart, we all are a lot more alike than what we have come to believe. So in seeing Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman together in this little snapshot in John chapter three and John chapter four, we see the full love of Jesus. He loves people on the far right, and he loves people on the far left. He loves people that are, you know, entrenched in one ideology or the other. And I think that's really important for us to be reminded of, because we tend to love people like us and other people unlike us. It's just this human thing that we do. And so Jesus, who had much in common with the Pharisees, then goes to Samaria to show us that he also has something profoundly in common with the woman who is there at a well. And he does have a lot in common. I think, I mean, look at that, the place where he was. And we don't often think about it. I know I don't often think about what it was like in Jesus's time. I mean, you have the Romans, which were in power. You have the Jews, which were under Roman rule. You have the Samaritans, which were uh, a different people group. You have all these factions of people that are, there's there's a mess. People don't like each other. And Jesus said there's a different way. There's a new way. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he calls us to love our enemies and not, you know, have a eye for an eye. So what does it look like then to engage in what you said, you know, the far right, the far left, what engage in these factions what is the way of Jesus for us to engage in spaces that are messy like that? Well, I love this picture of Jesus there at the well uh, because there, there's so much history, so much of a painful, broken legacy 
associated with Jacob's well. And it's there in the book. I walk through the painful history and what it symbolizes and how that this conversation that Jesus has with the woman is the longest recorded conversation that we have in the Gospels, which I think is really meaningful when you think about it. He has these brief conversations and passing with people, but he sits down with this woman. He joins her in her story. He enters into her embodied and lived reality. He doesn't send someone else to do it. He doesn't outsource his compassion, but but he's there in this really broken and painful place. And I think he does that because that the Samaritans in so many ways represent all of the issues of our times. In fact, if you look at the story as I unpack there in the book, you discover that the hottest topics of our day are packed into this, the issue of race and identity and ethnicity and power dynamics, the issue of women and their sexualization and um, of victimization, and on and on we could go. All of these issues that we're wrestling with today, these issues that are present at the fore of the culture are right there in this story. And what we see in the midst of all of this is Jesus being able to communicate with her in a way that is kind and compassionate and gracious and winsome and civil. And this is what I want to see people inspired to do. I want to see us come back to what it means to love people well, not people just like us, but all people. And what does it mean to engage people with civility? What does it mean to have conversations with them that are kind and compassionate and winsome, that are attractive and compelling? That doesn't mean that every conversation, again, is going to conclude in some predetermined outcome that we have for them. But what it does mean is that it gives people an opportunity to be seen and to be heard. And I think people are really looking for this. They've always looked for this, but especially in the world that we're living in today. People want to be seen, really seen for who they are. They want to be heard. They want to be known. And Jesus shows us this. He shows us that all people are worthy of being seen. All people are worthy of being heard. All people are worthy of hearing the truth without insult. All people are worthy of respect and kindness. And that's very clear on display in this account that we're discussing there at the uh, well of Jacob. Now, one of the things that people really are, are really passionate about is that people know truth. And what you said is is people could hear the truth that it's a way that doesn't turn people off, that is is winsome in a way, you know, it's the same as the woman woman at the well. Like Jesus did flat out told her everything that she has done, but she wanted to change her life and move a different direction because of that. But he wasn't uh, offensive. The woman caught in adultery knew what she was doing. And Jesus says, you know, where are your accusers? I don't condemn you, but then go and change your life. Sin no more and move a different direction. How do we speak truth in love? How do we, what does that look like? Because there, I know there's so many people that want to say, we just have to speak the truth, but there is truth in love that will help people move a direction towards the truth, towards Jesus. I, speak, I believe that speaking the truth in love is essential, but I invite people to step back and to 
live an embodied truth before we declare a believed truth. And I think that is not a small thing, because that when we live our faith, when we're living in the way of Jesus, when we're, our, our actions are consistent with our statements of faith, then I think it does something that is unseen to prepare the hearts of people to then have the kind of conversations that we so often want and perhaps need to have with people. In the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well, he engages her in a way that they don't shy back from truth. I mean, they're they're discussing the hot button topics of the day. I mean, if you just take a few of those topics at a Thanksgiving dinner, you've got pandemonium. You know, these are all the topics that I was raised being told to not discuss. And Jesus has these conversations. He has this truthful uh, conversation with this woman. I often think of the idea of grace and truth as being a rubber band that is stretched very, very tight. And it can feel this way in our lives today, that our desire to be gracious and graceful and our commitment to truth and the fidelity of Scripture feels as if we have been stretched and we are stretched. I think love holds that tension. And I think that when we enter into conversations with people, willing to go the distance with them, willing to take as long as it takes, rather than rushing people to conversion, rather than trying to win arguments with them instead of win friendships and win affection and ultimately see their lives uh, reclaimed by Jesus. Uh, All of that means we have to be willing to just have conversations with people. Uh, Again, I know it it can seem a little simpler than what it actually is in the day-to-day, but I also feel like we've overly complicated it, and I'm trying to make it a lot simpler than what we've made it to be. I think we've overly complicated it because I I think a lot of people can't engage in it because it feels too big for people to engage. The, The crisis in Israel with Palestine, it feels too big to engage like I, we can't do anything but have seeing other people for who they are and having conversations sitting at a table with people and sharing a meal is going to go a lot further than we think it will if we engage one-on-one how do we as individuals or as small groups of people engage in really hard things like the the crisis in israel Palestine? It's a big question, and I'll attempt to answer it. But I, I want to throw something in I just thought of uh, for a moment. Maybe maybe we don't do well in having conversations with people because we feel the responsibility to bring about their conversion rather than trusting the work of the Spirit. And so I think this is a, a something that we all need to be mindful of. We don't take Jesus anywhere. He's already there. We don't convert the human heart. That's the work of the Spirit. So when you uh, uh, embrace those two ideas as reference points in your life, then I can walk through my community, ride my elevator up and down, enter coffee shops, have conversations with my neighbors. And what I'm looking for is where are the evidences of grace? Where is God working in their life and in their story? Because I know he's there. I am not going to live under the pressure of having to take him there because that would be 
prideful of me and presumptuous of me. God is working on the hearts of people all over the world. So if we can discern the way that he's working, then we can enter into that conversation at the point that he's working. And that may be asking questions, having these kind and compassionate and curious conversations, right? Because, you know, if we're asking questions, people open up, if we're curious about their lives, if we're curious about what they believe, all of this enables us to be able to communicate back to the point of what they believe. And we're not wasting time and words and and all of this uh, answering questions or not asking. Back to the question you just asked in being in, on the ground in Israel. Last week, I was there for about 96 hours. was there at the invitation of the Jewish National Fund that has been involved back to 1901 in purchasing land from Ottoman Syria and then from uh, the British mandate. And uh, uh, that became the basis, of course, for the Jewish state. And during this moment, they're actively involved in relief. So they're providing psychological counseling and they're uh, creating care packages and they're resourcing firefighters and first responders and police officers and military. And so they're, they're engaged in humanitarian work, not just work related to the land. Being there on the ground, uh, we visited some of the sites of the initial uh, invasion. I mean, in those early moments that led to you know, this prolonged uh, attack, this assault by Hamas. And so I'm standing there as incoming rocket fire is around us and as outgoing rocket fire is being heard above us. And I'm feeling the weight of what we're discussing here because in this, where I'm at, as you can see, you know, it's just easy to have simple conversations, come to shallow conclusions and not to sit with the complexity that there is evil in the world and we need to be strong and we need to be clear. And yet at the same time, what I've been challenging people around me with is the idea that we can hold two ideas at once. Uh, we can be the people who build secure borders and long tables. We can be the people who have clear policies and compassionate conversations. We can be the people who recognize the complexity and that all Palestinians aren't one way. All Jews aren't one way. All Americans aren't way, one way. People are people. And when we tend to categorize them and label them and define them, we miss the opportunities to see them in their humanity and to connect with them as individuals. Can I share a story with you? I, this Please has been do. running through my head. So I want to share a story of something that happened to us with, with Syrians and we started to engage a, a woman, a widow with five children named Sarah. She ended up having a dream of Jesus, falling in love with Jesus, starting a little group that would study the Gospels and, and share Jesus with other people, uh, with her friends. So this Muslim background woman started to, to love Jesus. And one of uh, her cousins that we didn't know, uh, we started to, to visit him and, and we shared, I think it was this story, the story of the Samaritan woman. Um, and we shared the story of the Samaritan woman. And he said, man, I love these Jesus stories. Can you come every single day and share these stories with me? I just want to talk about Jesus. And so we were, we went home, we were debating how often should we go? Should we go back and, and hang out with him more? And, uh, about three days later, my, my wife was, was sitting in a group of women studying, uh, a Jesus story. 
And all of a sudden, um, somebody ran in and said uh, this this guy's name, this man, uh, I'll call him uh, Abu Ahmed. This is a good good name for a Muslim man. Uh, <laughs> Abu Ahmed has been shot. Abu Ahmed has been shot. And it took me, it took my wife a second to realize that it was the same man that asked us to to talk about Jesus every day. And it turns out there was a, a there was an NGO that was giving something out for refugees. And there was a skirmish at the at the front. He went out and tried to break it up. But the the leader of the NGO took out his gun and he shot him uh, right there. And he bled out in front of his wife and his child. It was just horrific. And all of a sudden, you know, the week after there were calls for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There were calls from his tribe to go and kill the brother of the NGO worker because it take one of ours, we take one of theirs. There's going to be murder that's going to happen. So this is the culture. This is what we do so that we could have a balance and equality of balance of power. And uh, so we were we were bracing for it. You know, there was demonstrations that were happening uh, while carrying his body that we thought that this was going to happen, that there was going to be revenge and murder. But then Sarah, the woman that I talked about at the very beginning, called us and said, you know, Abu Ahmed is, is one of my cousins, and uh, I have been calling all of the wives and telling them about how Jesus calls us to love our enemies, because we just studied the, the scripture of Jesus saying, love our enemies, and calls us to a different way. And all of a sudden, there was no revenge, there was no murder that, that took place, that there was calm and there was peace, because one woman decided to engage in a different way, the way of Jesus, and to call people to say that there is another way that we can engage here. We don't have to engage the way that we have for centuries. There is hope when we follow the way of Jesus. There is a different way. How can we start to how can we start to engage in this different way of Jesus? I love that. And I would build on that and say they, there is no hope unless we follow the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of God. It is the way of life, and it is the way that leads to life. I think it takes enough individuals coming to this conviction, coming to this conclusion. And if more and more people uh, look around at the deep, deep polarization in our world, the division that isn't getting better, it's only getting worse. The echo chambers are getting louder and the tribalism that seems to be more entrenched than ever. If more and more people look around and say there is a better way and then begin to pursue that daily, individually, that ultimately become, reaches a tipping point that becomes uh, a way for many more people. And so even as a pastor that leads up a church and serves uh, quite a number of people, I have to come back to the fact that this is something I have to live out daily. I have to be the individual that you've just described. And that 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 is something that we inspire others to do unless it's a lived reality for ourselves was in Israel in these conversations last week, meeting with people from uh, Kibbutzim and Moshavs and uh, those who had lost 
uh, family members under in the attack and those who had family members that are still kidnapped and being held uh, captive. And I heard one story that really stood out. I was thinking of it in that beautiful moment as you were sharing the story. Uh, it was a lady who lived right there on the border of the uh, Gaza Strip in a kibbutz. And so often uh, over the years, uh, Hamas had sent balloons with incendiary devices that would come up and come over uh, the strip, the barrier, the, the fence, and would drop on the other side. She, along with a couple of her neighbors, decided that they would begin flying white kites as a statement to shade to people on the other side, we want peace, we love you, we care about you. And so now, having lost her home, having lost uh, about a hundred of her neighbors uh, there in that little kibbutz, and being in Jerusalem in the safety of the hotel, she is wrestling with the question, do I go back? And I said, I can't answer that question for you. I can't you know, put you in a place of danger. But if you have anything within you that wants to go back, I would encourage that. We have to individually pursue the way of peacemaking. And if we leave this to politicians, if we leave this to nations, I don't know that the outcome will ever be in the interest of humanity. Jesus embodied this idea and modeled this for us and calls us as his followers to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to to be those who bring people together, not drive them apart, who build bridges, not barriers. And it all begins really with maybe, maybe for a lot of people just sort of getting sick and tired of the same broken cycles that are perpetuated from one generation to the next generation and saying there's a better way. And of course, the better way is the original way. It's the way of Jesus. And if enough of us pursue this individually, it becomes a movement that I believe changes the world. Yes, it does. And it starts in our neighborhood. As you said, it starts with an embodied truth. It starts that we are living it out ourselves. So give us an example of of that. What does it look like then to be in a community and a neighborhood to be peacemakers, to be reconcilers, to be able to say there is a new way, the way of Jesus in this community with our neighbors, with the people that are right next to us. It means a thousand conversations, some of them nonsensical and some of them profoundly meaningful. I believe that every problem is the result of a lack of conversation and every solution is in embedded within a conversation or expressed through a conversation. So I think it, it really is about having a lot of conversations, curious conversations with people. Uh, I do it daily. And I do it here in the situation. It, it's sort of funny. Those who will read the book early on will, will see my description of the HOA in the suburbs and how the HOA in the suburbs is sort of the equivalent of the law. And uh, so moving into this high-rise with the okay, rigid HOA, only to find profound division in the high-rise that we live in, with the HOA being under constant scrutiny and criticism. In fact, the board, the HOA boards have been replaced three or four times since we've been here. I've been to the HOA meetings with people screaming and shouting, and I'm thinking, this feels like church, <laughs> bad joke. But it's the same everywhere. It doesn't matter wherever you are. People are people. 
And so that's why we have to be the people of God wherever we are. What does it mean like? It means looking people in the eye and asking, how are you? And I, I think if you do that frequently enough, empathy begins to connect with the hearts of other people. And it's only a matter of time before people will begin to open up and share their lives with you. And when they open up and share your, their lives with us, we then have an opportunity to really, over time, to begin to share our lives. And it creates the ground for questions. I think that conversations lead to questions. Questions lead then to us being able to share our faith in a way that is meaningful. And it takes time. It takes a long time. I love this passage in the Gospels, which talks about Jesus being in the home of a Pharisee having dinner. And then there's this, this line, as unlikely as it seems, many had come to follow him. As unlikely as it seems. And I'm thinking, okay, even when God looks at this thing, there are some conversions that are unlikely. And so is the case in most of our lives. There's a story I share about a young lady in a church who had shared her faith with her grandmother over the years, and her grandmother had rejected her faith. And it was a pain point in her life. And in the final moments of her grandmother's life, she was able to crawl up into the hospice bed along with her. And her grandmother asked her to share her faith, and she did. And her grandmother came into relationship with Jesus and entered eternity on the basis of grace. And I have thought, what, what, is it not worth it? Is it, if it takes a hundred conversations or a thousand? I don't know when that point of conversion is going to come for our neighbors. I just want to be there on the day when it does occur. And quite honestly, if they don't come to faith in Jesus, the conversations haven't been in vain. Not everyone that Jesus encountered put faith in him, but he treated them with as much kindness and dignity as those who became his disciples. Everybody deserves that kindness and dignity that Jesus brings. How does language play a part of this? You know, one of the things that I was reading your book, I was convicted. It's, it's not because of, of you using uh, different terms, but I was convicted of the terms that I use, which you use, of the other or insider and outsider language. It's very clear for what you're trying to say. So you're using clear language, which is helpful for us as we're reading and engaging to know who we're talking about. But how do we, how does language play a part of that in my subconscious? Because now I am thinking of the other as other than me and yeah. not alike, not similar, totally different. And so it takes a little bit more to see the similarities in us. Is there a way in which we could utilize language that can help us engage the way of Jesus better? That's a great insight, and I'm processing it here in real time. It's a great insight. I think in using the term other, uh, I use it primarily within the Christian community to raise awareness as to how we perceive others. And then, of course, in being with others, I tend to think of us as being in common. And so I think it's important to be mindful of that. Otherwise, we, we do other people. And the idea behind this is to embrace them, not to reinforce the differences and the distances. To answer your question, I think every Christian needs language training. If, when we, we send people to live on the mission field, 
we know that if they're going to be effective, they're going to have to enroll in language school. And language school is not just about learning how to speak in the language, but it's the nuances. It's the nonverbal communication. It's the culture and the context. I personally think every Christian should be a bilingual Christian, that we should speak the language of Jerusalem and Babylon. And we see that in the life of Daniel, that when he was taken as an exile unwillingly into Babylon, he willingly embraced the language of the Babylonians, and he learned their language so that he could communicate effectively as uh, a child of God in exile. And I think if we consider the fact that in many ways we are in exile or feeling as if we are, and as the times change and the church no longer has the home field advantage, and as we are uh, experiencing so many people walking away from the faith, there is this sense of being in exile. And that can either make us angry, and it can make us defensive, or it can make us tender and soft and approachable. But through it all, we need to speak the language of Jerusalem because there is a vernacular associated with the people of God. And, you know, language is about shortcuts to meaning. So if you go to someone's family reunion, you sit down and they're talking about things that you don't connect with and they use little phrases that don't have the same relevance to you. But these are shortcuts to shared experiences and to deeper meaning. And so we use these you know, language within the church, you know, about spiritual formation and a million other things. And that's great because that's the language of Jerusalem. But we also need to know when to not use Christianese or the language of Jerusalem with the people around us. And we learn that language by listening to them, by listening to them. They will teach us the language that they think in. They will teach us the language that they feel in. They will teach us the language that leads to their belief systems. And if we listen to them and learn their language, we're quick studies. We can then communicate along those pathways. Oftentimes, I think people think that listening is just listening to the words that you say, but not engaging in a conversation. It's just hearing something. But there's, you know, the word Shema in the Old Testament is to hear and to engage and to obey, right? So what is that? for us? What is true listening? How do we engage in true listening? I had a really interesting experience about a year ago when my wife and I were invited to meet with Pope Francis from the Vatican. We had that second meet. I had a second meeting with him just a couple of weeks ago. But in that first meeting, he talked a lot about the ministry of listening and the apostolate of, of listening. What does it mean for us to really, really listen? And I watched him model this in this small group uh, that we were in with about 20 people in a circle, strange as it sounds. It was like a huge group of the Pope there. <laughs> he wasn't on a podium. He wasn't buying a lectern. He was just sitting around. And I watched him for 45 minutes not say a single word as he's going around the group listening to us. And I'm thinking, bro, Mr. Pope, Pope Francis, we're, we're here to listen to you. We have nothing at all to contribute meaningfully to this conversation. But I watched, and in listening, his heart was being opened, and he was being positioned for when he did speak. So what does it mean for me in this jet lag state that we're in right now? It means 
leading with love and kindness and compassion and making this commitment that I'm going to be curious. I touched on this earlier in our conversation here. I don't know that we're curious enough. It's really important as we're engaging, leading with love and compassion, that we uh, sit and listen well to one another, that when we engage in these conversations over a meal, at a table, have long tables, we can start to see the difference that we want to see in the world, that the way of Jesus can be lifted up and we can move forward in a healthy and beautiful way. So I'd love to flip that. I'd love to flip that Like I'd love to flip that question back to you and ask you with your experience from the Middle East, this center uh, of conflict, the eyes of the world on the Middle East, what did you learn while being there that translates back into your life today and connecting with people unlike you? Um, yeah, it really is have, sitting and having a meal and being a guest. This is what Jesus did with the woman at the well. He asked her for a cup of water. He didn't say, here, let me provide everything for you. He entered into a woman who was you know, sitting there at the midday that was outcast of her society. And he said, I want to be a guest of you. And being a guest is something that lifts up the dignity of others. I've had so many meals with refugees that could not uh, afford the meals that they were serving us. And you feel guilty uh, that you're eating all of this extravagant food, but it also gives them dignity and worth. And so as I enter into a community, I'm trying to figure out how I can not just serve the community, but be a guest of that community so that I can start to share stories of Jesus that impact the lives of the people on the ground for where they're at. That is actually good news for what they are seeking. And I can't know what is good news for somebody unless I am sitting with them, being a guest and listening well, and then I can start to engage. And that's why I love Luke 10 is when Jesus actually in that, he says, eat, then heal, then proclaim. We often think that we should proclaim first and then maybe we'll share a meal with somebody. But Jesus said, eat with what is set before you, engage in conversation know their felt need, and then meet that felt need, and then proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. And I think that's exactly what I learned over the years Beautiful. that I bring back. Beautiful. I think what I hear you saying and what, what I want people to know is that listening is an act of love. You know, we talked earlier about a sense of powerlessness that we can feel when we look around at the conditions of the world or the conditions of the Middle East, and you wonder, what, what difference can I make? Listening is an act of love. It is a, a matter of reflecting our willingness to cheer, to understand, and to value others. And that's why this is such an important topic that we're talking about right now. When we listen with the ears of the heart, Jesus was a master listener, right? And he didn't feel compelled to answer every question. This is a part of listening well. It's not just being quiet while you're waiting to break into the conversation. It's not just about composing your thoughts so you can counter an argument, but it's about hearing the heart being expressed in the question. And there were there are something like 113 questions 
ask of Jesus in the Gospels, and he only answers two or three of them. So we feel compelled to respond to every single you know, question with a clear answer rather than seeing the question as an access point to relationship, seeing the question as an opportunity to be curious about them and turning it back. And I think there does come a point in time when you want to offer some conclusions. Our gospel is a show and tell gospel. Our gospel is embodied and proclaimed. And that's really important for me. Coming back to our earlier conversation, we talked about living on mission. And I think there are many people that live on mission. And for them, it means never proclaiming the gospel. It means only living in community and being present to others. But I do think there comes a point in time when we have earned the right to to speak, when we've learned the language enough to connect, when we've heard the questions and we know exactly what the longings of the heart are, and then we get to respond back to them. So in the show and tell gospel, it involves this idea of listening deeply. And, And that's something that's really important, I think, even for families these days, because I don't know that we listen deeply. We listen lightly, we listen shallowly, but we don't really listen deeply. So when I listen deeply, I need to ask myself the question, what is being said underneath what is being said? And as we often discover, uh, our, our, you know, our statements are rooted in experiences. Our ideas are rooted in something much deeper than what we're just formulating in this moment. And if we can get to that, to these deep places in people's lives, then when the gospel breaks into their world, we have the kind of relationship that leads to an opportunity to engage them in spiritual formation and discipleship. We have many people, because it's certainly not everyone, many people who are spiritually unformed because the way they were introduced to the gospel was through a dogmatic proposition and a demand for an immediate Uh, response of faith. So it almost becomes a forced conviction through the peer pressure of a moment or an altar call. So they're not really formed because their introduction to Jesus was not the way that he introduces himself in the gospel. But when you see the kind of introductions that we see throughout the gospels, these then lead to the kind of relationships that lead to well-formed lives. And that's ultimately uh, what we want. Amen. I love that. That's such a a great place and conclusion of what it looks like to engage well with others, listen well, be curious. Terry, two quick questions at the end. One, if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? Love people well. Listen deeply. Stay engaged in conversations. Sit at the table longer. Don't get up and walk away and realize that ambition is overrated, but compassion is what matters most. Amen. That's so good. Anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? Yeah, I'm reading a couple of books right now. I've got them here on my desk. Jesus the Bridegroom by uh, Brant Petrie, I believe is the pronunciation. As is the case, you buy a book on Amazon and, you know, see. And he's also got a book here. In fact, I'm going to read for it called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Two brand new books that I picked up and uh, the insights that uh, 
Graham has into what God does at wells, uh, how he mediates divine encounters in those situations is really quite remarkable. Uh, he's a Catholic writer and uh, has much to teach us. So I'm enjoying both of these books at the moment. Awesome. Great recommendations. Uh, your book, Loving Samaritans, fantastic. Highly recommend. People should go out and get it right there. There it is. How can people go get your book uh, and then connect with you? Where would you like to point people to? They can pick it up on Amazon, order it through Amazon or in their local bookstore. If it's not in your local bookstore, I would encourage you to ask them to order that for you. And then connecting with me uh, these days, I connect with so many people as we all do on social media, believe it or not. And so would love to have people connect with me through Instagram and they can DM me questions and we can have conversations about the book through there. And there you'll see links as they come up over the next couple of months, leading to some additional resources that I would love to give people to help equip them to love well. And that's ultimately what this is about. It's about equipping people uh, to be present in the lives of others uh, in a way that is faithful and kind and loving and compassionate. And I think we all need to sit with this as we move through 2024, because we're going to need to extend a lot of grace and a lot of compassion, or our worlds are going to get smaller and smaller instead of being bigger and broader. Mm, That's so important and so good and terry this conversation was fantastic it was it was a breath of fresh air for me to be able to sit and figure out what does it look like to listen well to engage with compassion to have an embodied truth so that we could live with others that it's not just a a witness but we're it's a witness that we're sitting in a place where we could be a good guest and see what people truly believe and meet them where they're at to show grace and compassion so that we can engage in the world in a way that shows the way of Jesus, lifts up the way of Jesus so that we can live a better place so that we could be reconcilers, so that we could be places that bring peacemaking and peace and shalom and wholeness in a place where we live and breathe and work and play So thank you, Terry, for this conversation. I really pray that a lot of people get it and start to live it out uh, as they go about their day and their their world doesn't become smaller and smaller, but it does become broader and bigger. So thank you, Terry. Well, you model this so well on this podcast. So thank you. And I hope many, many people tune in to hear all that you have to say. Amen. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go 
and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.